Welcome, as Hal says, to the National Capital Bible Church. It's wonderful to be here. I spent this past week traveling, first of all, the pre-trib conference down in Dallas, then visited friends in Houston and also in New Braunfels. So it was more than, a, I guess you could say, a Texas two-step. It was probably like a waltz of some sort. Happy to, be, to have returned. So let's take a few seconds for our spiritual preparation. Our spiritual preparation, of course, is allowed for you. For you to take a few seconds, closing your eyes, bowing your heads, and focusing on the service. Confession of sins, of course, silently between you and the Father. And also, it allows you the opportunity calmly approach the service, trying to push aside the challenges of each day. So let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have created the National Cap Bible Church here in Northern Virginia. And we're thankful, Father, for the faithfulness that you have shown us. We're thankful, Father, that we have our meeting with our church family the end of this service. We ask for your blessing upon that. We pray that those who have provided that uh, information for us, that it will go, that will be understandable and all is well. We also, Father, pray for little Brady as he prepares for his uh, operation on Monday. We pray for the, the surgeons that they have uh, an understanding of what they're encountering, and we pray that you would guide them as they uh, conduct the surgery and, of course, for his recovery. We also, Father, are thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we are not required or have an opportunity to work for our own salvation. But instead, it is a grace. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're told, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. Not that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which you, Father, have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Father, we're thankful for the grace provision that you have made for us, loving us to the extent that sending your Son to go to the cross and his finished sacrificial work on the cross that allows for us to simply believe in his finished work. We ask for your blessing upon our service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our opportunity to worship the Lord in giving. The Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian, the Corinthian church, 
that he had established in Greece. And he tells them, and I think it's important for us because it applies to us today, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows generously will also reap generously. And then he tells them, therefore, because of that, he's going to give them an option. He says, each of you should give just as he has decided, determined in his own soul, his own heart. He is to give not reluctantly nor under compulsion because the Lord loves a willing, a cheerful, or a gracious giver. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the gifts that come to you this morning. We're thankful that they come freely. There's no requirement to give. It's simply a relationship with you. We ask these blessings upon the gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. I always like to remember special events in the United States. And speaking of this special event, we I was not here when it slipped this past week, and that is the remembrance of Pearl Harbor. It's special to me for many reasons, but at least one of them is that my father was there. He was there in Pearl Harbor aboard a tanker, and they departed just a few days prior to the attack, and he was on his way back to the United States. He often said that, well, he wished he was there. Of course, there's no way for him to have known what would have happened to him, but throughout World War II, he was, I guess you could say, delivered from many uh, different danger situation, dangerous situations. And one of them was Pearl Harbor. It occurred on Sunday, December the 7th. It began a very serene moment at the United States Naval Base on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. The warships of America's Pacific Fleet rested at anchor. Many sailors were preparing for church or relaxing, and all was quiet at Pearl Harbor. At about 7.55, a buzz from the sky broke the calm as a dive bomber bearing the red symbol of the rising sun of Japan dropped out of the clouds. A second later, a swarm of Japanese warplanes followed. Sirens wailed as explosions sounded across the harbor and black smoke poured into the sky. American Siler scrambled to battle stations while the Japanese planes screamed in for the kill. The main targets were huge battleships moored in the harbor. Anti-aircraft guns roared to life, but they did little well. They did very effective. They were not very effective. Bombs and torpedoes hit ship after ship. The Arizona, the Oklahoma, the California, the West Virginia, the Utah, the Maryland, the Pennsylvania, the Tennessee, the Nevada. Sailors fought to save their ships, their comrades, and their own lives. Much of the California's crew abandoned ship after flames engulfed its stem. 
When the caption determined the battleship might be saved, Yeoman Durrell Connor hoisted the, the American flag from the stern. At the sight of the colors, the sailors returned to fight the fires and keep her afloat. Despite much heroism, the attack reduced much of the fleet to smoldering wreckage. The Japanese planes disappeared into the sky, leaving 2,400 dead, 1,200 wounded, and 18 ships and more than 300 American planes destroyed or damaged. News of the disaster left Americans stunned, but not for long. A remarkable attitude, a remark attributed to Japanese Admiral Izurku Yamamoto, who planned the attack, summed up the results of Pearl Harbor. I feel we have awakened a sleeping giant and instilled in him a terrible resolve. And that was absolutely true as America went to war, not only in Europe, but certainly in the Pacific. All right, this morning I want to do several things. First of all, let's read our call to worship. Turn in Psalm 31. I won't have the time to spend much in Psalm, Psalm 31, but it's just another one of these passages that I find not only encouraging but edifying. Psalm 31, and instead of starting with the psalm, because it's a lengthy psalm, let's turn to verse 19. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how great is your goodness. Goodness here is our lives, what he provides for us, his provisions. God's provisions for us are great. We often say great is his faithfulness, and it certainly fits here as well. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, who respect you, who revere you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. In other words, he provides for us and we rely on him. We trust him for what he provides in the presence and he, uh, which you to those who tr- trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. So what this tells us is that others observe what God is doing in our lives. We are a testimony to others. Verse 20, you shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. So he's speaking there of those who trust in you. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness, his loving kindness in a strong city. In other words, in the refuge, the protection, the fortress. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Verse 23. O love the Lord, all you his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays or rewards 
the proud person, the account of the person, and repays the arrogant person, and fully repays. In other words, what he's saying there is that those who are arrogant, those who are proud, will receive what they should receive. Verse 24, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. I enjoy the Psalms. Now, what I want to do is get us going. 1 Corinthians seven twelve through 16. This is going to be a bit of a challenge to cover this, but I want us to keep moving in these paragraphs, this subject that Paul is teaching. Our scripture this morning is going to be in 1 Corinthians seven twelve through 16, and I've included one of the passages here, one of the sentences, but God has called, he has appointed us, he has designed us to live in peace. In other words, the human race was not created for combat, for fighting, for adversity between uh, us. It's designed for harmony. And in Satan's world, that is a challenge. Let me read, beginning in verse 7, verse 12. I'm actually going to start in verse 10, because in verse 12, he refers to what previously he's been taught. Verse 10, he says, Now to the married, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, in other words, divorce, But even if she does depart, let her remain. She must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing, or we could say consent, consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing, if he consents to live with her, she must not divorce him. Verse 14 is really the answer to why. We read verses 12 and verse 14 says, we might at the end of the end, we might say why. And verse 14 says, because... The unbelieving husband is sanctified, set aside, set apart by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified or set apart by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, just reading that sentence can bring some difficult understanding to it. But we'll work on this because it's a it's a wonderful pras, uh, promise for us. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, divorces, he must be allowed to depart. Let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. Verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save, and I like the idea deliver here, but save is fine, will save your husband. And the ans- this 
expects a negative answer. It says, starts by saying, how do you know? You don't know. You don't know the future. So how do you know, a wife, whether you save, you will save your husband? You don't know. Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't know. And so this is the passage. Now, I'm going to return, as I like to do this, to our reading of these verses and try to give you working translations that help us to understand what that specific verse is saying. And sometimes it's not easy. 1 Corinthians 7.12 But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. The working translation, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And one of the things that we'll study here and one of my points is that you'll notice he says, I'm saying this, not the Lord. Now, for some, they'd say, oh, well, that means there's less in significance here. That's not it. Paul was simply saying is that this is not something that Jesus addressed while he was on earth. Verse 13, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. The working translation, And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, but he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So what Paul is teaching here, and we'll see, is the unity here, that there is still an importance not to break the marriage. Verse 14, 4, as I said, because it's causal, because the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And you'll say, what in the world do we mean by sanctification? What do we mean by children being unclean? Are they dirty? No, that's not, because Paul is addressing theology, spiritual matters. But now they are holy, and we'll see how this works. Because, because the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. I think that helps us to understand this. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her uh, believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be clean, no access with God. In other words, that actually, Paul uses that word uh, as, as he takes it from the Old Testament. Someone who is uh, not a believer, someone who's not in fellowship, they would be considered unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Another way of viewing this for or because the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage. So the believer has an, a significant blessing to the marriage. 
because the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are. They have access to uh, the information from the Word of God and they also have a believing parent who can teach them, can bring the Word of God to them. Fifteen, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us in peace. Now, that last phrase, but God has called us in peace, isn't referring simply to verse 15, but it's referring to verses 12 through 15. Because all of what he's teaching here is not teaching conflict, but harmony. Trying to save the marriage. The working translation, but if the unbeliever wants a divorce, then let it take place. He must be allowed to leave because this is an imperative. In those circumstances, the brother or sister is not bound in the marriage. They're not bound to the marriage contract is what this is being is saying. God has called you to live in peace. We're to live in a, a life of harmony. And then finally, 1 Corinthians seven sixteen, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Shouldn't be a period at the end there. Glad you didn't see it. The working translation. For how do you know, wife, whether you will bring your husband to salvation? You don't know. It's not something that you can predict. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will bring your wife to salvation? You don't know. But what Paul is teaching here, he gives us actually two different reasons to remain in the marriage. First of all, to bring a blessing on the family. And then secondly, there's a chance that your testimony to your unbelieving mate will, in fact, respond to your testimony. That's what he's teaching. All right. I know we do have, oh, verse, I had two working translations here. Do you wives not realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And do you husbands not realize that your wives might be saved because of you, your testimony? Now, what I'm going to try to do, and sometimes these points that I make are a little lengthy, but I'm simply trying to give you the sense, the flow of this paragraph that Paul is giving us. And sometimes in our translations, uh, we're not completely certain what is being said. So first of all, you'll see a couple of these points from last week. In verse 1, Paul gives his recommendations for those who are for those who are single. We know this because in verse 10, he specifically says that what he teaches in that verse is a command from the Lord. So when he gets to verse 10, he says, this is from the Lord. Well, the previous part of this 
chapter says, this is my recommendation. Now, secondly, Paul's an apostle. His teaching is inspired. It's directed by God, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, what he says carries the weight of scriptural truth. So when he says, I'm saying this, not the Lord, he's not saying, so this is, could be possibly uh, accepted or maybe you just want to set it aside. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that if you're going to try to find uh, this teaching by the Lord, you're not going to find it. I'm teaching it. It's my guidance to you. Three, in verse eight, Paul addresses those who find themselves unmarried. He prefers, he said, he prefers that they remain unmarried. So those who, for one reason or another, find themselves single. And it's not just someone who's single, but maybe someone who uh, has lost a spouse or has been divorced for whatever the reason. Paul does not give a specific reason for unmarried to remain that way, like him, as he says, like me. But it seems it's so that they might devote themselves, uh, might devote more time to God. That's what Paul was doing. Four, in verses 10 through 11, Paul said that the Lord had commanded that someone married that someone married was not to divorce. So we have that in verses 10 through 11, so that now we're prepared for our passage in verse 12. Point five, if the man or the wife uh, divorced a mate, a spouse, they must remain unmarried. Or, he says, to reconcile with that individual, their previous spouse. And that's what he's taught so far. Point six. Now, in verse 12, Paul addresses marriages between a believer and an unbeliever. And you might say, how important could this be? Well, in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, this was normal. Why? Because when he established the church, most of the couples were unbelievers. And some became believers. And the other part of the marriage was still an unbeliever. So what are they to do? Well, in the Old Testament, they were not to marry. Remember, they were not to marry an unbeliever. And if they did, Ezra told them they should uh, divorce their pagan women. But that was because of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law doesn't apply here. Not only that, but the situation in Corinth was, as he says in verse 16, you have an opportunity to be a testimony to your unbelieving spouse. Seven, Paul says that what he is teaching in this paragraph is from him, not the Lord. In other words, during Jesus' ministry, he had never addressed this situation. But again, Paul, with no less authority, would address it, probably because this was a problem in Corinth. There were probably many families that began, they were married 
as unbelievers. And then one of the members of the family would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Eight, we see the rest. The rest refers to believers who were married to non-Christians. Probably the believers in these marriages occurred because the marriage originated between two unbelievers. But one has become a believer. Nine, Paul commands that a believing husband must not divorce an unbelieving wife. And the believing wife must not divorce an unbelieving husband. This is not an opportunity to separate, to divorce. As a matter of fact, he said you must not. Ten, in verse 14, divorce was to be avoided because the Christian spouse was a source of God's grace to the marriage. We call this blessing by association. Blessing by association. The unbeliever would benefit from the blessing given to the believer. So what this tells us is that we understand that there is special blessings for believers who marry. And that blessing can be extended not only to themselves, but extended to the unbeliever. And we'll see that that blessing also is expressed to their children. Eleven, we see the word sanctification. It literally means to be set apart. Or I like in this particularly, this context, dedicated. So they are dedicated. Sanctified literally means set apart or dedicated. While the text does not state why, the blessing by association also includes the expose the exposure of the truth of the word of God. So that hopefully believer is bringing God's word into the family. Verse 12, within the one flesh relationship, the blessing of God, which came to the believer, also affects the entire family. So the believer now has a source from God, a blessing from God, and that blessing can be associated to the unbelievers in the family. One example would be Jacob in Laban's household. You may remember that Jacob travels from his home there with Isaac and Rebekah and goes to Laban. And while he's up there, Laban's flocks explode. Blessing by association. Joseph is another example. Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's family, was exceedingly blessed by him being in that family. Thirteen. It is in this sense that the unbelieving spouse was sanctified and the children holy. It is this sense that the unbelieving spouse was sanctified and the children holy. In other words, the children are set aside or blessed because of one of the parents is a a set-aside believer as well. So there is a blessing here to those children. And Paul describes it as being set apart, different. 
than what would be to a child in an unbelieving home. Fourteen, there were exceptions to the rule of no divorce. If the unbeliever insisted on a divorce, he was not to be denied. So there is a an exception here that Paul says, again, and we'll see that he says that we are designed to live in harmony. We're not supposed to be combative here. So 15, in verse 15, Paul says that should the unbeliever, the unbeliever insist on a divorce, he must be allowed to depart. So there's a an exception here. Yes, Paul wants the marriages to remain. But if one of the members of the marriage desires to divorce, he must be allowed. 16. We see this word bondage. says that uh, the brother or the sister, believers, is not under bondage in such cases. Uh, And I think that Paul uses this term because it has a sense of how a marriage should be understood. Marriage is designed to remain. So bondage here means to be enslaved or under obligation. In context, a married couple is one flesh or obligated to one another. There's an obligation here. And I think to enhance that, Paul says, you're bonded. 17. If an unbeliever insists on divorce, the believer is no longer obligated to the marriage covenant or contract. So Paul now says that if the other person breaks the contract, breaks the covenant, then the believer is no longer obligated. And there's several different interpretations of this verse of how that is to be uh, interpreted. But this is mine, not the Lord's, I guess I could say. Verse 18, Paul did not say, as he did in verse 11, that the believer should remain unmarried. So it appears, while some would say, if there's a a divorce, then the divorced individual must not remarry. But Paul doesn't say that here. He doesn't say that that individual who's been divorced must remain unmarried. 19. God has called us to peace. This is a reference to the principles taught in verses 12 through 15. If an unbeliever agrees to live with the believer, uh, the unbeliever agrees to live with the believer, or if the unbeliever insists upon divorce, the believer is to accommodate that situation. The believer is not allowed to be combative with the unbelieving mate. The believer seeks to achieve harmony in relationships. 20, 20. How do you know? The grammar expects a negative response. We don't know. So in our, our verse that says, how 
How do you know? The answer is you don't know. You don't try to guess. You simply be a godly testimony to your unbelieving mate. We don't know what the future holds. Therefore, we live a godly life, obeying the word of God and allowing God the Holy Spirit to work with the unbeliever's soul. Got two more points here. 21. There is a possibility that the spiritual behavior of the believer will persuade, will evangelize the unbelieving mate to believe. This is another reason to remain married. First was to sanctify, to bless the unbeliever, unbelieving partner. This one says that the unbelieving spouse might come to trust Christ through the believer's testimony. And then, similarly, Peter expresses the influence of the believer's spiritual behavior towards the unbeliever's married partner. This is one of those wonderful passages in 1 Peter 3, as we close tonight, this morning rather. 1 Peter 3. So Peter here is going to teach the same principle that Paul is stating. In 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, Peter is giving guidance to wives. He says to them, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if someone do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be one, may be one, one, by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste, your pure conduct, accompanied by fear. So what he's simply saying is that if you have an unbelieving husband, your testimony, your godly behavior has an impact on him without even saving a word, saying a word, simply your behavior. All right. In summary, Paul says that the believer should strive to remain married even if one member is an unbeliever. Paul gives uh, two reasons. One, to bring blessing to the entire family. And two, to possibly to be a testimony to the unbelieving spouse. The application here, the principles that Paul teaches are important for how a marriage should should function for believers. And that can be applied to believers today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul. He teaches about marriage. This is critical to us today for believing marriages, marriages that have two believers. There's still great difficulty, a conflict, And Paul is trying to tell us how we should live those, that our spiritual lives have an impact on that relationship, and we should do all that we can to honor you and make the marriage honor as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.